What is the biggest mistake? Now, you don't have to say this out loud. I'm not looking for you to shout it. What is the biggest mistake you've made in your life? I've been pondering this question this week, uh, and mainly because we've been doing visits with video visits with KK's dad. He's in prison, and he's been uh, he's faithful for those visits. He he is there every single time, but every single time he also ends up crying. He ends up crying. And he talks about this being the biggest mistake of his life. He's messed up throughout his life, he says, but, but losing Michaela was the biggest mistake he's ever made. And I hear the pain in his voice, and I hear his hurt, and I do weep for him. I've never done anything like what he has done. I've never lost a child. I've never walked down that path. And so it makes me ponder that question, what is the biggest mistake I've made in my life? And I, I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that for most of us, maybe not all of us, but for most of us, it's not one single mistake. But it is choosing between two paths. You see, he didn't one day wake up and choose to sell meth and then lose his baby. There was a long path that he walked that led him to that spot. So it wasn't just one single decision. It was a path, a path that he walked. And I think that's the case for most of us. Most of us, when we're making bad decisions, it's not like one bad decision that shatters our life. It's a path. A path that we've been walking. And the thing about this path is that there really is two paths. We're going to see Genesis, we're going to look at Genesis 4 here soon. And we're going to see in Genesis 4, God really outlines two paths for us. And the thing about these two paths is that at any time in your life, you can jump off of one path and get on the other one. And there is an invitation to both paths. The decision on which path you will take is yours. So in Genesis 4, 3 through 12, we're going to see the path and we're going to see the consequences of these two paths. So let's turn to Genesis 4. We'll start in verse 3. If you're not familiar with your Bible, Genesis is the first book, so you're looking at the very front of your Bible here. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of fruit on the ground. So we're, we're in the story now of creation, and we're to the point where the, uh, Adam and Eve have had kids. And this is the story of their first two. So uh, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and fell to his face. Now we could go really in depth upon like why did God like one and not the other, but we don't need to. We, we can just simply say that God preferred Abel's to Cain's. That's all you really need to know. So Cain was very angry and fell on his face. So what is Cain's reaction? 
God doesn't like my offering. And he gets mad about it, right? The Lord said to Cain, so now this is God's reaction to Cain. This is God's instruction to Cain. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we see here God laying out two paths for Cain. You have a path of rebellion. You have a path of giving in to sin, saying, okay, I'm going to let this emotion, this desire control me, and I'm going to ignore whatever God has told me, and I am going to take the path of rebellion. Or, you could take the path of submission to God. You could say, look, God is the creator. God knows what is best for my life, and so my life is going to be lived out in submission to Him. Those are the two paths we can take in this life. We can keep reading here. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And they, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, so we can see which path Cain took. It's very clear. He took the path of rebellion. He took the path of following his own desires. And what is the consequence? The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth. So we can see the consequences of this path, of this path of rebellion. It's a, it's a consequence of wondering. It's a consequence of loneliness. And there are many still to this day that are just like Cain, that are living out in rebellion. And what we see from Cain forward is people on these two paths trying to convince the people on the other path to switch paths. I'll be very straightforward. As a Christian, I think it is our job to try to convince people on the path of rebellion to get off the path of rebellion. To tell them the end result is loneliness. The end result is anguish. The end result is eternal separation from God. That's not a consequence you want, so jump onto this other path. Whereas the people on the other path are saying, look, the path of rebellion is good. You get what you want. Your heart desires it. You pursue it. You pursue your desires. Why on earth would you be on that other path? Come, join us on this other path. And so the two paths are in conflict. The two paths are trying to convince the other group to jump ship, to join that other path. The same, it's true for individuals on the path, and it's true for cultures as well. It's true that there are there is a culture that is trying to convince the church 
or trying to influence the church to be on the path that they are on. So since the beginning of the church, people outside the church have been trying to influence the church to look more like them. I'll say that again. Since the beginning of the church, those outside the church have been trying to convince the church to walk like they walk, to talk like they talk, to hold the values that they have. So how does our culture infiltrate the church? Well, the church is inside a culture, right? We, we do not exist outside of a culture. We exist inside of a culture, and the culture puts external pressure for the church to conform. So a few years ago, a catchphrase for a lot of churches was real and relevant. Anybody remember hearing any churches that would say, we're real and we're relevant? And what the, they were trying to reach out to other people, right? They were trying to reach out to non-believers. But what they were saying is that, and I get it, because what they were saying is, through the Bible, our, uh, we can have the answers to your cultural problems. We can have the answers to what you're going through. So we're relevant for your life. Because there was this picture that was painted that the, the Bible is just this old thing and it's not relevant to today. And so what they were trying to say is that, hey, look, we're relevant for today. And it's true, the Bible is relevant for today. But in a search or, or in a way that we sometimes reach out, we sometimes begin to let that culture that we're trying to influence shape the church's culture, influence the church. And we begin to look more like the thing that we're trying to change than we're willing to admit. So an example of this is church governance. I'm curious. We'll take an informal survey here. How many of you have put thought into how the church is governed? I'm curious. Yeah, all right. Great. We got a good amount of people here. Most Christians don't put any thought into church governance. Most Christians choose a church based on the emotional feeling they get while they're at the service. Not putting a whole lot of thought into church government. So most people don't think about the way the local church is structured. But if you've ever been hurt by the church, you know that church governance is an incredibly important topic. So we believe, here at Calvary Bible Church, we believe that the Bible describes, not prescribes, and I think there is a difference here, and I'll explain the difference just really quickly. Throughout the Bible, we can read descriptions of how things operate, and we can see prescriptions of how we need to live. For example, Paul says to pray without ceasing. That's a prescription. We know that, that Paul has prescribed for us to pray. Let's say you went to your doctor, and your doctor said, you have this life-threatening illness. But the good news is, all you have to take is this one prescription, and you're going to be fine. Every day you would wake up, and you'd take that prescription, wouldn't you? It would be really heavy on your mind. Paul is giving us this prescription. 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have a prescription, I should say, to pray. To pray without ceasing. To practice praying without ceasing. So that's a prescription. And we can read throughout Scripture, there are lots of prescriptions on how we need to live our life. There are also descriptions. So throughout the Bible, there is no real like prescription. We can see different prescriptions for church, like there should be elders, deacons. But how they operate, how they function within the church, there's no real prescription, there's only descriptions. And so we have to put in the legwork. We have to work to find how the church should be operating. And so we take the principles that we see from that New Testament church, from the New Testament writings, and then we give practical applications to how that plays out today. So here at Calvary Bible Church, we believe that the Bible describes the governance of the church as elder-led congregational. Now, we need to talk a little bit about what that means, right? Because some people hear that and you're like, what on earth does that mean? So congregational simply means that the church is autonomous, meaning that there is no outside organization that should be telling the church how it is to operate. So therefore, we're not a denominational church. Now, I'm not talking bad against denominational churches. I just disagree with them. Denominational churches can say, hey, look, you need to hire this pastor. And the congregation might not have any say in it. I have an uncle who was a Methodist pastor. He had no say in which congregation he was going to be at, and the congregation had no say in where he would, in what, what pastor would be leading them. So every three years, he rotated churches. We don't see that in the New Testament church. We see the congregation having a say in who the pastors will be. We see the congregation having the final authority. I should take one step back. The Bible has the final authority. The congregation then has the authority to, to apply biblical principles for the church. We don't look to an outside denomination or an outside organization to call the shots. We look towards the Bible, and then we apply the Bible. So that's what a congregational means. Elder-led means that we're not only autonomous, there's no outside influence, but the congregation is being led by the elders. And then you kind of have to ask, what does that even mean? Well, there are, by default, I think most churches in America are what's called pastor-ruled. Pastor-ruled means that the staff make all the decisions. The congregation might be informed about the decisions, but oftentimes the pastors, the staff, they just make decisions. And then sometimes they answer to an elder board. But oftentimes that elder board is also what's called elder ruled, meaning the pastoral staff or the elders, they make the decisions for the church and the congregation can just follow along. We believe in what's called elder led. So the elders, their job is to take spiritual care of the congregation. The elder's job is to equip the conversation, the conversation, the congregation so that the congregation are well-versed in Scripture, so that the congregation know what they're supposed to be doing, and then the congregation acts. So that's our job, is to teach and preach the Word. That's how we lead. We don't rule. So that's the difference between a pastoral or elder-ruled congregation and an elder-led congregation. We believe we see this in the early church. 
But I don't think we typically see this today. I think the default is pastor-ruled. I should say the default for the American church is pastor-ruled. So how did this happen? Well, the church let our culture influence its governance. And so instead of looking to the Bible for governance, we started looking at other, what we thought were successful models of governance. It started this, I should say this started in Rome. So the early church had what's the uh, what we call the elder-led congregational model. The elders got together. The elders helped make decisions and guided the congregation to fulfill the purpose of the church. And then it became more of a, a Roman-influenced church. As Gentiles began to join the church, we started to see the church switching from this kind of Jewish elder-led congregational model to a Roman culture model where the Rome and it started to actually look like the Roman government model. So you have Caesar, ultimate authority, right? And then what does Caesar have under him? He's got a Senate. And we eventually get to the people who really don't have much of a say. And the church starts to model that. So all of a sudden you have a pope with ultimate authority. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find a pope. And then from the pope, you have bishops. And the bishops are kind of like the Senate, right? And eventually we get down to the congregation that your job is just to follow along blindly. We don't see that. But we've seen throughout the years, cultures shifting and changing how we govern the church. And so today, I think we look at what do we highly value? Who do we highly value? We look at entrepreneurs, CEOs. They get things done, right? And so we stopped looking at the New Testament for a description of how we should handle church governance, and we started looking towards these these CEO-type models and saying, look, they get stuff done. Let's just hand over the governance power to these guys that can get things done. And so I, I would even say that that pastor-ruled model, we could call it the pastor-CEO model. Let the pastor get things done, because, man, do you see how big our church is growing? I had an opportunity to, uh, to speak and interview with a guy. He was the guy who started a church called Flatirons Church in Boulder, Colorado. At one point, it was the fastest-growing church in America. I think they're... They're up to around 20,000 in attendance right now. Kind of blows your mind, right? Like, that's the size of a small city. The, the first pastor, though, they grew from a small church that two, actually two churches that were dying came together to form this church. And they grew from these two dying churches to a church of about 14,000. And his wife left him. And he had an affair. I was talking to him about what happened. He said, Aaron, we were growing so fast. No one wanted to put on the brakes. No one wanted to stop and say, hey, how's your spiritual life doing? How are your wife and kids doing? That's the result of the CEO model. We see abuse of power. 
And we see church that is so caught up in growth. And the excuse is, hey, we're doing great things for God. And so we want to grow really wide with absolutely no depth. And so we see the CEO model that is so prevalent today. Because we've let the culture tell us how we should govern the church. Instead of the Bible, tell us how we should govern the church. So this is just one aspect of of one area of how churches let the culture influence the church. It's not a new issue. We see cultural influences being addressed over and over again in the New Testament, right? Several letters, letter after letter, I should say, was written by apostles to instruct churches or people on how to live out Christian lives because it was so easy to let the culture influence us. So today we're starting a new series. And this new series is called Hopeful. We'll be studying the letter of Revelation as we encourage one another to be hopeful. The book of Revelation is really a story about how the two paths end. We've got Genesis laying out the two paths for us. And these two paths come to completion in Revelation. That's where we get to see what's the ending point of the two different paths. The letter was written by John, the son of Zebedee, the same John that wrote the Gospel according to John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's writing a prophetic, apocalyptic letter to encourage the church that is struggling with the culture that is demanding the church submit to its influence. As we've discussed from the beginning of the church, those outside the church have been trying to influence the church. From the Judaizers, the very first church, one of the first letters written, was to the the church in Galatia, where Judaizers came in and said, Gentiles, great, we're so glad you're on board with this Jesus thing. Now go get circumcised. Because that's our culture. Galatians was written to combat that. So we see people from outside, the Judaizers, to the Romans, and today we see political parties in America. And I say political parties, not just a political party, but every single political party wants to use the church to further their cause. So we see political parties today trying to influence the church, trying to exert authority, demanding that we conform. So people want the church to be what they want it to be. This was a major issue the church John was writing to was dealing with. The church had survived horrible persecutions by Nero. Horrible persecutions. They were fed to lions. Nero at one point poured oil and hung them up on stakes all over his garden and burned them alive so that he could light up his garden at night. Horrible persecutions. The church survived. The next big problem the church faced was pressure to conform. So now under Domitian, 
the church was being pressured to take part of what's called the emperor cult. It's a religion in Rome that worships Caesar as the one true God. In fact, one of their sayings was, no other name can save but the name of Caesar. Sound familiar? And they demanded that the church worshipped Caesar. And you would either partake in the worship of Caesar or be cast out of society without ability to participate in trade. So the church begins to conform. Just a little bit, you know, just a little bit of compromise so we can live kind of a comfortable life. Just a little bit of compromise. I mean, I'll still say I, I, I have faith in Jesus, but, but I can say I have faith in Jesus, and I know that, that Caesar's not a god, so I might as well just give a little bit of lip service that Caesar is God so I can eat a little bit, right? I think of our Christian brothers in China right now who are standing strong in the faith. Although the Chinese Communist Party is putting pressure on them, and what, they, what do they want them to do is say, just register with us. Hey, just register with us, and, and we're just going to make sure your doctrine's really tight. And what do our brothers and sisters in China do? Well, they can either conform to live a more comfortable life, or they can stand strong and say, no, the church has, or the government has no business interpreting the Bible for us. And there are millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ in China right now that are facing starvation and death because they're not willing to give in just a little bit. No compromise. It was in the midst of this background that John, who had been boiled in oil but survived, John, who was an outcast on the island of Patmos, because he refused to join the emperor cult and was leading the Christians to remain faithful to God, it was in the midst of this background that John was given this book to write. Because in the midst of the pressure, Christians began to lose hope. It was almost easier for them during the heavy persecution of Nero. They could stand strong, they could fight well. It was Domitian that started to wear them down bit by bit. You weren't going to be a martyr. You were just simply going to slowly starve. So in the midst of this pressure, Christians began to lose hope. They began to turn. So God gives John an assignment to write this letter to encourage Christians with hope so they will not give in to the mounting pressure to worship Caesar. So now, you're John. You're being watched. You're on an island. You're being watched closely, and you, you've been given this letter to write. You know the letter that you send out will be read by the Romans and possibly destroyed immediately. Like, let's say you give this instruction that says, Jesus is the one true God. Don't participate in the, wor in the worship of the emperor. Boom, that letter's gone. All that work, just gone. What are you going to do? How are you going to write so that you can communicate clearly, but don't send off alarms? And possibly even get the people you are writing the letter to murdered. You might use a lot of symbolism. 
Symbolism uh, in Revelation is written with, or I should say, Revelation is written with a lot of symbolism for a few different reasons. One, and we can go to the next slide here. One, it was a good way to write without Rome knowing. So throughout the Old Testament, there is not one, oh sorry, throughout Revelation, there is not one Old Testament quote. He doesn't quote the Old Testament one time. And yet there are more references to the Old Testament than in any, any other book. In fact, some, some uh, theologians think that there's about 70% of the book or the letter of Revelation is a reference to something in the Old Testament. Think about that number. It's a huge amount. In order for the reader to understand the letter, the reader had to be steeped in Old Testament literature. And most of the Second Temple Jews were. If you said something that was like two lines of an Old Testament uh, writing, boom, they'd catch on right away and they could finish it for you. They knew their Old Testament scriptures like the back of their hand. They knew it better than the back of their hand. They grew up memorizing it. They knew it so well. And that was a good cultural tradition that influenced the church later on so that the New Testament Gentiles even began to study the Old Testament in the same way. They were steeped in Old Testament literature. Today, one of the reasons why we struggle with the book of Revelation is because we don't understand the Old Testament. We ignore the Old Testament. One thing the book of Revelation should do for us is it should encourage us to study the Old Testament literature as well. So symbolism helps John write the letter the Romans won't understand, and yet the Christians will get. Second, symbolism creates excitement and arouses emotions. So one of the examples of this is, uh, you know, you could John could write about the dictator, or he could call the dictator a beast. Which one's going to sound more exciting and arouse emotion to you? Yeah. Or another example is, you know, he could talk about the world system of rebellion against God. Don't join in that, wor that rebellious system of the world. Or he could talk about Babylon the Great. And especially for the Jew that he is writing to, Babylon the Great would arouse emotion because they knew what Babylon did. Babylon sacked Jerusalem and put all of the Jews in exile. In rebellion against God. He could use that symbolism, or he could just simply say, Oh, the world system. Don't take part of the world system. The world system is overcoming. Or Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great will ultimately be defeated. The world system will ultimately be defeated. So one last note on symbolism. Understanding symbolism should help the reader... Uh, sorry, understanding symbolism should help us read the letter, but it is also important to understand that symbolism was used highlight the purpose of the letter, which is Christ's glory. We often get lost in the symbolism and make it all about the symbolism. That's one of the problems that we run into with reading Revelation. We start getting lost in all the symbolism and we try to understand every little bit of the symbolism. And so what, what does our focus point become? On the symbolism. But what is the symbolism all about? It's about the glory of Christ. 
And so let's not get caught, and as we read through this, we're going to take the next several months to read through this. As we read through this, we're going to talk a little bit about symbolism, but let's not let the symbolism become the focal point. The focal point should be the glory of Christ. So let's keep the focus on the glory of Christ. So if we're not to get caught up in the symbolism, how are we to read the letter. And here are some guidelines for studying the prophecy. First, we need to read with humility. We need to read with fresh eyes and the ability to say, I think this is it, but I could be wrong. If you're willing to show me from the Bible why I'm wrong, I'm willing to abandon that idea and jump on your ship. But you better bring some biblical proof, right? But we need to read with humility. Anytime we're not reading the Bible with humility, we're reading it from arrogance and we are starting to interject our theology into the Bible instead of bringing theology out of the Bible. So read with with humility. That's the number one. Number two is we need to follow the normal reading, which is historical, literal, or literary and grammatical context. Uh, I like to use the term normal reading because we, we used to use the term uh, the literal reading and people would say, you don't mean literal. I always like to use uh, the Song of Solomon as the example. You know, uh, you've got 32 white teeth, or sorry, 32 white sheep all in a row. That's symbolism, right? We knew that she didn't have 32 white sheep all in a row. What is he saying? He's saying, your teeth are perfect. That's what he's saying. You've got perfect teeth. They're white. You're not missing any. You know, you don't have big gaps there. They're perfect and they're not stained. That's what he's saying. And we understand that. So we stopped using literal because we knew he didn't mean literally. We know he means teeth. So we use the term normal, which means you have to look at the historical background. That's another important aspect of understanding Revelation is looking at the historical background. What was happening at the time? If we don't understand what's happening at the time, we can still read Revelation and we can still get a lot out of it just as with any other letter. But we'll get more out of it if we understand the historical background. But within that, we also need to look at uh, the, the grammatical context. We also need to look at genre, which we'll get into in a little bit, but we need to look at genre. All right, so let's. Uh, so we need to follow the grammatical context. Uh, genre is the rules for how to read. So when you read a genre, basically you and the writer are agreeing to certain rules. There are certain rules in poetry. There are certain rules in nonfiction. There are certain rules in fiction, and you're agreeing to this these rules. So the genre for Revelation is number one. It's a letter. It's written to real people at a real time in history. It has a purpose, and John is writing to inform and persuade his audience. If we ignore that, we will miss points. Secondly, is prophetic. Prophetic simply means it is both a prediction of the future and a proclamation of the present. Though there is a future reality that Revelation is going to to speak about, there is also the here and now. We start off, Revelation 1-3 says, Blessed 
are those if they keep or take to heart and keep its words. There is a here and now application of Revelation. Too often when we read Revelation, we think, well, that's in the future. That's wrong for us to think through. There is a here and now, and we are blessed if we take to heart and keep the words. Finally, it's also apocalyptic, meaning it is revealed or disclosed. We see right off the bat the revelation of Jesus Christ. The term revelation right there is, in the Greek, it's apocalyptic. And it means just simply revealed or disclosed. It was not revealed beforehand. It has been revealed to John. And then finally, historical context. What did this mean to the original reader? If it didn't make sense to them, it probably isn't the meaning. If John's original audience would have been confused by it, then you're probably not on the right track. So we also need to recognize figures of speech and symbolic language, the use of like in 1, 13 through 16. It's not that those things are exactly, only John is using these things to help describe something. We look for built-in interpretations like uh, 120. You'll see that there is a built-in interpretation where John is going to say, and the lampstands or the lampposts are the churches. Boom. Now you know what the lampstands are, right? Okay, there's a lot of built-in interpretations through the book. And finally, it brings us to the most difficult part of interpreting Revelation. Revelation uses language on three different levels. One is the text level. That's the words on a page. And I think of like, John was running a race. Well, you understand that, right? John was running a race. So that's the text level. But there's also the vision level. And that's the picture the words paint. John was running the most important race of his life. So you've got the text level. Now you're starting to see a picture that's being painted, right? This race that is the most important race of his life. And then finally, we've got the referent level. And this is where we have to understand the Old Testament. The referent level is what the vision actually refers to. As the example, John was running to the tomb with Peter, the most important race of his life. Now, if you're not familiar with Resurrection Day, you might not understand that reference, and you might totally miss the whole point of the text level, the vision level, and the reference level. So we need to get the two first two to get to the third, right? But we also need Old Testament background information to help us understand that referent level. So along the language, we also need to address revelation in history. There is a bit of an argument about the letter. If it, is, it, is it all about just what's happening to the early church, or is it the future? And I think it is both and. The church was under pressure. John was writing to address that pressure. The seven churches were seven real churches facing real issues, which leads to the needed future vision. The vision that fills us with hope, that helps us see the world, not through man's eyes, but through the eyes of Christ's, or Christ. So the pressure to give into the world system has never stopped. At times the church has caved, and those are dark days in history when the church caves to the external pressure. 
Even in those days, there are faithful remnants that stand for the truth of God's Word. Other times, the church stands tall, shaping the culture. Just as throughout the history of the church, today we feel pressure to conform from external forces. There is pressure to abandon Christ for the comfort of the world. We're going to study this to stand strong. To stay on the path that God has called us to. So there is a painting titled, Cain Fleeing Before Jehovah's Cursed by Ferdinand Corman. Whenever I bring up this painting, I love this painting, by the way, but whenever I bring up this painting, Jen talks about how ugly it is. She's right. That's an ugly painting, isn't it? But I like it. I like it, uh, and actually, uh, it was a pastor in Nebraska who kind of turned me on to this. He has this hanging in his church office building. He has a huge staff, and every day the staff have to walk by this painting. And it's there for a reason. He has it there to remind the staff that this is the result of the path of rejecting God. This is Cain, who took the path of rebellion, fleeing before God, and this is the result. It is lonely, it is ugly. So compare that path with the path of those who submit to Christ. Even if like Abel, they are killed for submitting to Christ. The end of that path leads to the glory of Christ. As we study Revelation, let us focus on the glory of Christ to give us hope, to stand for God's Word, and remind ourselves that there are two paths we could give in to the external pressure and join the path of rebellion, or we could stand on God's Word with the end being God's glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you, uh, even just for revealing the story of Cain and Abel. You could have left that out. And yet, you, you give us this story that paints the picture of two paths that we could be on. And Lord, we pray that as we study Revelation, as we look into it, you would help us stay on the path you have called us to. Help us to be grounded and rooted in the faith in such a way that we would even be able to call to those who are living in rebellion and say, hey, this path is easier. This path is wider. And this path leads to life. Lord, we know it because you have declared it. In your name we pray.